Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today we've come out of central London and we're down here in Sutton at Bedzed, which is this amazing environmentally friendly space that's both living and working space and it's home to Bioregional. And our guests today on the pod are Sue Riddlestone, who's the founder and CEO of Bioregion, Bioregional, and her colleague Susanna Gore, who's a project manager. So, Sue and Susanna, thank you very much for having us. Thank it's a you. Pleasure. Glad you're interested in the Sustainable Development Goals. We are, and and, and welcome to Planet Pod. Um, So I'm absolutely fascinated reading a little bit about the history of Bedsed and Bioregional. And you've been at this game a long time. You're really ahead of, you must have been very ahead of the curve when you set up Bioregional back in 94, was it? Yeah, back in 1994. Uh, In those days, actually, there was a huge uh, amount of talk about green consumerism. I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember all of that. (laughs) Uh, and uh, at the time I actually had young children and uh, was involved in thinking about consumption and, and the impact that our consumption was having on the natural world. And actually, back in those days, climate change wasn't such a thing. Uh, it was known about, but it wasn't seen as the huge sort of central, huge threat that it is now. Uh, so we just started out thinking, how can we live our lives in a way where we reduce consumption but still have a good life? And these days, the way we talk about it is um, if everyone in the world lived like we do in the sort, of, the sort of global aspirational lifestyle of a nice home with a car, a TV, clothes, all those things, we'd need three planets to support us. And obviously, you know, we're seeing the impact of that because huge swathes of the world are living at that level. And at the same time, so many people don't have enough. Yeah, so, um, so when you started, it was much more of a, um, can I say, not necessarily a lifestyle, but more of a kind of a belief and a philosophy that was actually about, you know, consumption and being green and, and reducing your impact. It wasn't being driven by some of those big drivers that we see now, the climate change drivers and then the international commitments in the same way, was it? So it was much more, was it more, more small scale, is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. And we started out, we always have taken a business approach. Uh, so if sustainability and sustainable consumption is going to be mainstream, it needs to work in the mainstream of the economy. So we've always we started out looking at products like locally produced charcoal, uh, getting that into national retailers and um, sustainable paper loops, setting up recycling closed loop recycling collections. So we've got um, quite a sort of heritage in the circular economy. Uh, and this was you as bioregional as your relatively small social enterprise charity, is that right? Yes, and then we needed a, a new office, which uh, led us to think, oh, perhaps we could build a, a green office, and then we found this big site where we are today, uh, and thought, oh, great, it's big enough, we could live there too. So we put this project together, took it around, and we were very lucky that uh, Peabody who are London's largest and oldest housing association, put up the money to do it. And then we co-developed this project, Bedsed, which when we did it, we just tried to, we were thinking about how we were going to live and work here. So we were just trying to think about how to enable, make it easy to live a sustainable lifestyle. 
and uh, it turned out to be this world-famous project. We still get visitors. We had a Korean film crew down here last week, an Italian documentary maker going out to 7, 8 million people in Italy. You know, it still creates this huge interest all around the world. For those listeners who don't know about Bedsett, I mean, it is an extraordinary place, and we're in sort of so, you know, we're basically in suburbia, aren't we? Just outer edges of yeah. suburbia, and and you and you get off the bus, as I did, because I travelled sustainably today. Um, you get off the bus, and then suddenly there's this extraordinary development, and it's noted, I think, for for your cows on the top, which which you know these kind of great big sort of metal structures. But but just talk me through what is it about bedstead that makes it special, and and if you were having to describe it to somebody, what was the some of the things you'd be saying about it? Well, I think right from the start, a key thing was we needed to be zero carbon in our energy use in the building. So that's why it's called BEDZ, Beddington Zero Brackets Fossil Energy Development. Uh, Right, I did wonder. (laughs) (laughs) That that makes sense. And uh, Beddington is this sort of sub-neighbourhood of where we are in Sutton. Uh, And so... Straight straight off the bat, it's a very energy-saving building. So you don't need much energy to heat it. It's very well insulated. So if you wanted to replicate that in a building, you might look at the passive house levels of insulation, for example. Uh, and then we also looked at, uh, obviously, generating energy from renewable sources. So we have photovoltaic panels uh, 777 square metres of them, which generate about 20, up to 20% of our electricity. Uh, we're saving electricity as well. We've reduced it 45%. So the overall thing is to sort of keep reducing down and then supply the remainder with renewables, but also think about behaviour change and making it easy. So we have the metres on display so that people can see, rather than under the stairs, so that people can see how much energy they're using. And these days, people have the... Smart meters, course, yeah, smart meters, okay. and you can sort of so see ahead of your time in that yeah. as well. But but it's it isn't just the building. And a bit later, we'll we'll, we'll do a bit of a walk around and try and give pod listeners a sense of what it's like to be here. It's actually the the kind of culture that sits around Bedstead, isn't it? So this is a yeah. mixed use development. This isn't just eco homes because there are quite a lot of eco homes out there now, aren't there? It's it's actually a whole community. Yeah. So we've got a hundred homes here, and also our business and uh, the architect's business and there's a college there's a community centre so there's quite it's a a mixed use development it's mixed socially so we have some people who are on very low incomes paying rent and other people quite a lot of architects actually who bought the home because they like it or people who just needed it from the area so it's a, a properly mixed community it's by no means a bunch of hippies who built a sort of eco commune uh, and people move in and out and then they can just join in with the lifestyle so apart from the energy saving we think about travel so we have we have london's first car club here where you can hire a car when you need it making it easy to sort of nudge you know tipping behavior so you can have your bicycle by the front door you can uh, you've got the bus stop and the train so you came by a bus today uh nearby and uh, also uh, we've we've so these things all add up to reducing car use by fifty percent here on top of the energy saving. But it's all about making it easy. Yeah. And I mean, things that just naturally happened here were the residents start started an email group, and if somebody's got something that somebody doesn't want anymore, 
like a DVD player. Um, I found my um, my DVD player broke. My husband was doing his karate practice using a DVD, and he needed a new one. Uh, within two weeks, coincidentally, somebody was saying, "Does anyone want a DVD player?" So, so I like looked around and got it. You know? Yeah, so it's like those free cycle systems that yeah. we've got going out in the wider community. Yeah. So really, it's, it, it's an embodiment of that whole philosophy that's behind the Sustainable Development Goal 12, which is responsible consumption and production, isn't it? So, so I'm right in thinking that the work that you've been doing at Bioregional has been really instrumental in getting that Sustainable Development Goal 12 into the UN Global Goals, the, the 17 goals. And you really spearheaded the movement that made sure that became adopted as a goal. But but what does it mean, responsible consumption and production? What does it mean in terms of, of, of the way we live our lives? And for people who may not know what the SDGs are, can you just give us a little brief overview? For those of us who are in the wealthier countries, it's very much the goal for us. And I think for business, it's, it's a lens through which you can implement and see all of the other goals. In fact, sustainable, it is a goal which talks about uh, consuming resources in a sustainable manner by 2030, which is actually a really tall order. Uh, it's about companies reporting, it's about food waste and all those things. So it influences all the other goals, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. the thing about the SDGs, and, and I think pod listeners will know that, the, that all of the Planet Pods in 2019 are, are within the framework of, of the SDGs. The thing about um, the SDGs is they are completely interdependent and interlinked, aren't they? They are. But obviously so much of what we do in the developed world is around consumption. So our way into those goals will be through consumption. So this is really about changing a mindset. Is that what it's about? A both an individual and a, a corporate mindset? I think so. I think to really rise to the challenge which is what we want to do to achieve the SDGs and the Paris Agreement you know we need to be zero carbon by 2030 and we can't sorry by 2050 Mm. but I think in the richer countries we need to be thinking of that as a 2030 time frame yeah so for companies for individuals it's about how do you set up your life your company your offer to your customers to help them to achieve sustainable consumption and production the SDGs and the Paris Agreement. And there are so many things you can do. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, think about me yesterday. I'm trying to reduce my plastic consumption, uh, especially, obviously, in single-use plastics. So um, I've been looking around. I'm actually changing my behaviour, looking, and a number of consumers are, looking for a soap bar instead of shower gel or Mm, a, a bottle of shampoo. Um, so I found my way to uh, Lush, who are selling shampoo and conditioner bars so that I'm reducing my amount of plastic bottles. And sales of soap have gone up 7%. I don't know if you saw it recently. They've gone up 7%. Yeah. And sales of hand soap are going down. So I think if businesses don't start think ahead with the consumer and mm. these trends... Mm then they're almost losing out. So Lush are way ahead now. Their sales are going to start booming and everyone else is scrabbling to think, how do we get rid of the plastic? Yeah, I mean, and plastic is just that, it's just that if, you know, it's a real indicator of, of that uh, wasteful consumption, isn't it? And I know, Susanna, a lot of the work you do is around um, the circular economy. And it's a subject we have talked about on the pod a little bit before, but for those people who might not know what circular economy is, because ultimately that's about driving down consumption, isn't it? How would you describe that, just in a few sentences? And and that is about, in itself, is about behaviour change, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, so it's quite a complicated um, concept, but in a nutshell, it sort of asks us to rethink the notion of waste and resources. So in today's economy, we take resources, we make products, and then we throw them away. But imagine how much value is actually left in those materials and products. So a more circular economy uh, enables products to kind of continually cycle through the economy. So it's a bit like in nature. So when um, nothing is wasted in nature, organisms reuse what other um, what other organisms sort of put out. And it's the same concept. So in a circular economy, everything can sort of cycle through the economy, either the biological cycle, so it cycles through nature safely by biodegradation or composting, or it cycles through the technical cycle, which is around sort of repair, reuse, remanufacturing and recycling. So it isn't just, you know, taking a a short-life product like a single-use plastic water bottle, drinking the water, putting it in a recycling bin and sending it off to a recycling centre. That's not really circular economy, is it? That's just being slightly less wasteful. <laughs> so so how do we how do we make that shift? Because I think people would say, oh, but I've got this sorted. I know I use single-use plastic, but I always put it in my recycling bin and I know it goes off to a mixed-use recycling facility and gets turned into something else. But you're actually saying it's much deeper than that, isn't it? It's about how you think about the products and the uses at the very beginning. Yeah. It's almost building in the reuse at the end rather than just saying let's recycle it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... That is part of the journey. And I think, you know, people recycling their plastics is a really important step. Um, But I think a lot of it comes down to the companies and the people designing and actually making these products. So if they're designed from the beginning with the mindset of a circular economy and they're thinking, how can this continually be used? How can we make it so that it can be taken apart at one point and the bits can be reused in something else? Then that is sort of the mind shift. That's quite a big ask of a big international, even a small company, isn't it? That's a a whole new way of designing products. It's a new way of marketing products. Presumably it's an impact on profitability because a lot of, I would have said, a lot of consumption of products is built on the idea of obsolescence. So, you know, you've got effectively a a reused DVD player. Most people would say, I'll just buy a new one. And and as a manufacturer, a lot of your profit is tied to the fact that you want people to buy new things all the time, mobile phones being a classic example. Mm. So so how are we going to tackle that issue of actually getting companies to think differently and look at their own profitability and their own manufacturing cycle in order to be more sustainable? I think a lot of businesses out there have actually been spending a lot of time looking into this. So I don't think we're starting from nowhere, but I think that the... The international agreements and the fact that governments are moving on this, which is setting that framework and that level playing field that business wants, and the fact that consumers are out rebelling on the streets and the kids are going on school climate strike and and all of this, helps to just give a bit more impetus if you're the person in the business who's responsible for sustainability, or even if you're, ideally, if you're the chief exec and you want your team to do it, you know, for, for you to talk to the board or for you to bring everyone along with you, I think there's a demand and there's, an in, there's, a, you know, there's a continuum where we're going to, we've got to have that sustainable future. And I think there have been some, as I say, governments. So, for example, um, when I was at the high-level political forum at the UN in New York last summer, uh, many governments are actually implementing this so they're going to need business to keep up so uh, 
you know, there's the driver for you. And then in terms of looking at it, it's, I think you can look at different models, so service models. Yeah, I think the other thing to say is if companies kind of look at the facts and they want to still be here operating in 50 years' time, they actually can't be using the same number of resources that they're currently using. And it's sort of a well-known fact that there are increasing numbers of consumers coming to the market. Uh, people in India and China, their income is growing and the kind of the number of consumers is just going to increase exponentially and smart companies want to tap into that consumerism and they just can't do it at the current level so I think it's sort of also just looking at the facts quite starkly mm. um, that if they want to be here in 50 years time then they need to get on board with this. So it, so some of that production and uh, taking goods to market whatever those are is actually being driven by consumer demand, you would say. You think there's a changing nature of the consumer saying, actually, we're asking for sustainable products, or is it just that there won't be enough physical material resource to make the products that consumers need? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, there's definitely going to be a shortening supply of materials. Prices are going to be much more volatile, so that's one important aspect. But definitely, I mean, I think the, um, the sort of plastics issue has become such... A big issue in consumers' minds, and all of the companies are jumping on it now. It's sort of been such a tipping point in a way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of been bubbling under for ages, and sort of us working in sustainability have sort of been yeah, <laughs> hitting our heads against out, our yeah. heads against the wall, and then suddenly there's just this switch, and yeah. consumers are really changing their behaviour for it. And you know, sort of seeing people are using reusable coffee cups and rejecting the straws and all those kind of things. They're small steps, but it shows that actually behaviour change is quite achievable once people are kind of passionate about it. So Yeah, so the way we would think about it is it obviously depends what sector you're in and and what products you're producing. Mm. Uh, But we, for example, have done quite a lot of work with B&Q and Kingfisher Group looking at their sustainable products. And uh, there's just so, there's a myriad of ways depending on what the product is. And it's about what does the customer actually need? So, for example, um, we looked at... uh, Plants, you know, plants are coming in these polystyrene containers, which are not, uh, they just create a huge amount of waste. Yeah, you can't recycle them, they're horrible, they're tiny, and they just break down. Nobody likes them, who wants that in their bin, even, you know. So um, the team at B&Q looked at actually coming up with something that was more sustainable. So a tray where it was easier to get the plants out with a reduced peat in fact is it not peat yeah. uh, growing mm. medium yeah. and then you can reuse the tray to mm. grow some seedlings and they're encouraging people to grow their own and sell it and their sales of seeds have gone up so it's about sort of skewing things slightly perhaps at the level the consumer can go along with but looking ahead mm. all the time to the new products and the improvements you can make which also save the business money because for example, with those polystyrene plant trays, with the new system, you can actually fit more in a lorry. So, uh, you know, so that reduces reducing transport, transport costs yeah, and yeah. costs generally. Yeah. So does this require a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a light bulb moment at, at senior levels? I mean, do you find that when you're having these conversations, you suddenly get someone who gets it and says, oh, I can see a whole new future? Or is it um, an incremental process? Because... You know, that tiny example you've just given us of of buying a plant in a a local, you know, DIY centre 
and the impact that having that plant in something different packaging is significant because it's affected the supply chain, it's just affected transport, it's affected the CO2 production and the you know the carbon monoxide and the lorries and all of those things. So I can see there's a great big long tail of positive benefits. But if you hadn't, you know, if you hadn't got the buy-in to start with or someone hadn't had that thought process, you wouldn't have been able to work out what the normal trail of benefits is. So so where do you start? I mean, do you start by saying this is a way to reduce, you know, costs and save you money, or you know, I just need to win you over your your heart rather than your mind. I mean, how how do you? I think it's about... it's both, right, um, or all of it. <laughs> so there's because that's no easy you need thing to get in a commercial environment. You need it? to that's... get the directors on board, and I've met so many people who are like middle manager responsible for sustainability, and it's almost like they need a counselling group because they're trying to break through. Yeah, to they're a lonely voice leaders. very often yeah. in an organisation, aren't they? So I think. In the case of B&Q, the chief executive at the time, Sir Ian Cheshire, he really bought into it. We'd already been working with him on the charcoal product uh, and we'd already been working with the head of sustainability who'd come from the paper mill where we worked on paper recycling. So we were all on the same page, as it were. Um, and the, the directors of B&Q at the time really bought into this. And we've had a 10-year partnership with B&Q, helping them to become more sustainable. In fact, it's probably 11 or 12 now, isn't it? Uh, helping them to become more sustainable. So this is a long-term thing. I was going to say, this isn't a quick fix, is it? And you do need all the time to convince the finance director, to convince the shareholders. You know, you've seen the trouble Paul Polman's had, recently retired from Unilever, managed to innovate quite a bit with products being compressed into smaller packaging, Mm, which is another analogy. And, And I think longer term... There needs to be a continued rethink about the whole business model, even of transporting things very long distances and perhaps 3D printing and localised production and remanufacturing is something we were thinking about bioregional years ago, which is out of step with the current global economy, but perhaps which manufacturers will need to look to because and retail. And if you think about it, if... Uh, we're truly paying the trans. You know, transportation is the fastest growing source of carbon emissions. And if you think about it from that point of view, you, we do need to localize production a bit more. And yeah. sometimes we have these global supply chains with things moving backwards and forwards around every country. It's probably a right a real waste of carbon. Yeah, it's a bit bonkers. And yeah. we're not going to mention the B word, but you know, uh, were we to mention the B word, that whole supply chain is in is in jeopardy, is it not? Indeed. So, so, so we've talked about that kind of macro need that, which is obviously getting really large organisations on board, or even smaller scale organisations that are responsible for delivering products to consumers. But what can we do as individuals, Susanna? What can we do as, as consumers and as customers? What's a, if you had to say, look, there are two things you could do tomorrow to change the way you approach consumption and production or to, to get the circular economy into your own lifestyle, what are some of the things that people can do, practical things that people can do? Well, I think one of the sort of biggest first steps is just reduce how much you're buying in the first place. Sort of really question, do you really need it? Um, and be a much more engaged consumer. So think, do I need it? If yes, do I really love this particular item? I think there was a clothes campaign set up by Olivia Firth, which was the 30 wears campaign. And it's just a simple question. If you find a t-shirt that you like, you sort of ask yourself, am I going to wear this 30 times? So it shows you that you really love the item. And that's sort of a key element of this. It's sort of only buy things that you really love and is sort of well-made. Um, The second thing would be to try and repair products. So I think there's a real kind of 
culture that something's broken and oh, don't have time or can't be bothered or don't have the skills to fix it, so we just throw things away. But there's so many resources out there at the moment. There's this small company called iFixit. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's sort of an online global community which has uh, repair guides and videos for thousands of different um, products and devices. So there's so much information online that you can go and find how to fix a a smartphone or something like that. And it's so satisfying to fix your stuff as well, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's by great bugbear that I can never get anything repaired. And, and, and I think my, my family would testify that one of the presents I was the most excited about was, was the fact that my very um, close and lovely colleague, Jim, who is a, a co-producer on Planet Pod, repaired my watch for me. He put a new watch strap on and I'd had no watch for nine months and then it turned up in a little box on Christmas Day and I did, literally, oh, squeak with pleasure. So, so uh, all-round good person. Thank you, Jim. Um, but I think that's that's one of those issues, isn't it? It's that sustainable fashion and the driving the behaviour change of encouraging people to think about having a product they love and treasure. You know, and it's that old maxim, you know, never have anything in our house that you don't believe to be beautiful or know to be useful. Yeah. So, so it's really just saying it's a transition, isn't it? And I've, I'm always intrigued by these, how many people watch YouTube or television programs about how to declutter your house. If you bought lots <laughs> less stuff in the first place, you wouldn't need to do all that decluttering. But it's the same drive, isn't it? Let's have fewer things and let's make those things last for longer. I've got, uh, I've suddenly thought of one more. So. Oh, another topic. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, perhaps be open to new innovations uh, and new ways of consuming. So I think, going back to your point earlier, it's one of the issues is sort of the ideas around the circular economy require us to rethink the ways that we are consuming things. So um, service models, leasing, and sharing things it's a really different way from how we're used to consuming at the moment and it is a bit of a shift so I think if you kind of are willing to be open to that and open to these new companies that are coming through and and sort of challenging the traditional ways of doing things then that will help the shift towards the circular economy as well. In a way we're just going back though aren't we we're stepping back to having more localised production um, you know sharing things not all owning the same thing and when you know a hundred years ago we wouldn't have all had a version of X, we'd have shared that, whatever that was, and we'd have actually probably walked to work or travelled a very short distance to work, and we've been much closer to the to the means of production and the means of consumption. So mm. I feel like we're kind of stepping back, aren't we? Well, I guess that's back to the days when we didn't have plentiful, cheap energy, so mm. it makes sense. Um, but also it's about having a diverse economy locally, which is less risky, as you say. These global yeah. supply chains are actually quite risky. Uh, and thinking about the... One thing that we've been working on, thinking about the repairing, I managed to repair my... I got a Fairphone uh, because there's a whole issue around sustainable mining and um, so I've got a Fairphone where I know it's got fair trade gold within it. Our phones have 16 of the 17 precious metals in them and everyone's got a phone in the drawer. We get... It's one of those things at the moment which is a growing source of um, consumption where you're sort of pestered to upgrade to the next phone all the time. Uh, And what happens to the old ones? You're not really sure where to take them. When they break, you know, they break too easily. So we're trying to tackle all of these things. I've managed to repair my own Fairphone, but as a a kind of a a campaign or a a multi-stakeholder partnership we've launched um, at Bioregional, it's called Transform Together, where we're actually working with these governments I mentioned earlier that really want to transform our economies um, and achieve the goals. 
to look at that whole supply chain, to look at all of these issues from the minerals coming out of the ground uh, through to, you know, the workers' conditions in the factory, through to how is it sold to you, the design, is the design made for, for repairing, uh, are there people that can repair it for you, when it's, can you upgrade it, when it's the end of life, can you recycle it easily and you know there's probably more but basically looking at all of these and what, what we found was there are already great solutions for all of these steps along the whole supply chain and really it's just about scaling that up so we're going for this mass procurement exercise where the governments and big businesses uh, and cities are going to say we want our phones and our ICT to be like this we've got a vision which is going to achieve the goals uh, and please can you tell us how you're going you know to actually put it into procurement contracts and then to work with the manufacturers and the supply chain to try and bring forward this much more circular uh, and sustainable consumption and production of smartphones and ICT so I'm massively excited about this which is something that's just kicking off we'll have to come back and have another conversation with you and we have actually got a programme for Fair Trade Fortnight Ah. And I know that Fair Trade, who are celebrating their 25th anniversary this year, are looking at, at, at Fair Gold, and particularly in relation to, to phones. But so, I think the, the key thing is the solutions are all out there, yeah, so many of them. There may be a few things we need to refine, but so many people have put so much love and attention into this issue for a number of years now, including mm-hmm. ourselves. Uh, and so the, the, the answers are out there. We just need to get on and implement it and scale it now. Yeah, so challenge for, for business there, take take action and for individuals. And and we can't put off going out into this beautiful winter sunshine much longer, but I think you wanted a closing note. Sorry, I just wanted to say, I think we've got to be a bit cautious about sort of viewing it as going backwards because I think that um, that doesn't sit well with kind of companies and consumers as well so I think it's sort of going back to core principles but it's not going backwards sort of what we'll be using to enable the circular economy and better consumption are loads of technology and advanced manufacturing and data and all this kind of stuff so it's sort of it's a move forward but it's a simpler lifestyle so echoes yeah I think we've got to make it seem aspirational and something that kind of we want to look forward to and I think that is the key thing about all the work we do here at Bioregional, what I really love about it is that, for example, the people who live here at Bedzed, what they really, when we surveyed them, what they really love is the sense of community and the quality of life. And, you know, this is actually a better life. That's that's what I'm finding is, is so wonderful, really. So yeah. you were, when you were describing Bedzed a few moments ago and, and, and consumption generally, you were talking about um, the idea of, three planets worth and I know this is something that there's a campaign around which is that you know we get to the point every year and it gets earlier and earlier in the calendar year that we've already used up a whole planet's worth of resources Mm. and we're only in you know early July or something Earth overshoot day Earth overshoot day that's exactly it I think it was August last year wasn't Mm. it Um, but 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 following on from that, you've developed something at, at, at um, Bioregional called One Planet Living is that has that come out of that movement and what does it actually mean? So One Planet Living was our response when people came to see Bedzed and say, said, we'd really like, how could we do one of these? How could we do a similar development? So we systematised the, the work that we did here, the strategies and the thinking, 
and this idea of how can we get from three planets worth of consumption down to a sustainable one planet living. Uh, so we've got 10 principles from health and happiness through to zero carbon energy with nature, um, uh, culture, community, waste, all in there too. Uh, and lots of, you know, thousands of people all around the world are using this framework, which is, av- which is really available to use uh, for people. And we also work with partners to implement it. So there's some fantastic projects which are... So there's a sort of kind of a bed Z in China, oh, in Guangzhou, <laughs> uh, that I personally worked on, which was brilliant. And uh, then there are other sustainable homes projects uh, in Ottawa. There's a whole community of 2,000 homes being built at the moment. Uh, and uh, companies taking it on as well. So engineering companies like Kundal mm-hmm. uh, and uh, B&Q. Uh, have have taken on this idea and are using it to basically come up with an action plan in order to achieve one planet living or sustainable consumption production. So that's zero carbon and all of the SDGs. And we worked on achieving the SDGs by talking about one planet living and all of these great examples at the UN level and talking to diplomats about it and explaining this, this concept of SCP, sustainable consumption production, to them through our practical projects. So what I love about it is it really is possible and it's something that everyone can do. And it's almost like the jigsaw puzzle pieces mm. that show that we can achieve goal 12 and all of the SDGs and the Paris Agreement. You know, we really can. Yeah. I think people need, if you really want to do a really good Project here's here's a way you can do it, uh, but also we all need those examples so that we can run towards it rather than kind of put our head in the sand or think I'll get not, to that later. It's not about going without. It's not about privation, is it? It's just about living in a, a way that within the resources that we have that, that, yeah. that that's actually richer in some ways we, than we, the, the current overproduction that we live in. At the exactly. Moment. We talk about happy, healthy lives within the natural limits of our planet and leaving space for wildlife and wilderness. Oh, what more could we want? And that's a perfect segue into going and have a little look, little look round. So um, we're going to um, have a quick tour of Bedset and point out to some of Planet Pod listeners some of the exciting features of this extraordinary development. And the sun's shining, so what better place to be? Thank you both for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. So, so we've come outside and I'm looking up here and... If you've never been here before, you'd be amazed at how, I mean, it's stunning. And it's this fabulous conversation, a combination of, of, of open space and lots and lots of light. I'm amazed at how many windows there are, because obviously this is a low energy development. So I would have thought windows would not necessarily equate to energy saving. Well, the big windows are on the south side, and they're actually conservatories. So that's a space where you can get, the sun will heat up the space for you when it's a nice day and on the north side they're actually much smaller windows so that's that's the style here oh i see so we're looking at it from the south so people <coughs> have got these individual spaces and they've also got balconies and and gardens as well because this is a mixed-use development as you said isn't it so you've got family homes and smaller homes from yeah from from one bed homes to four beds uh, and nearly every home has a bit of green space because an important thing is to make space for nature and wildlife so We've got green roofs, which are really lovely, and they also help with collecting the rain mm. so it doesn't rush down and cause yeah, flooding. Runoff, yeah. Uh, yeah. And people here are really good 
planting up, putting out bird feeders and so on. So we've, we've actually found we've got some things like rare red-kneed spiders in the roof and not sure everybody was too excited about that but <laughs> we need to make space for nature we do and i'm looking up and i can see the famous cows that we talked about mm. tell me what they do i mean they're, they're very brightly colored but w- what's the purpose of the cows so they because it's so well insulated with double triple glazing and all that insulation the very thick walls you could get stale air so the idea is that they turn into the wind and a little bit of fresh air comes in and then there's a heat exchanger in the middle, stale air's drawn out just naturally through physics. Uh, and so the stale air's coming out from the bathroom and the kitchen and the fresh air's coming into the living areas. And it's just a little bit of air change just to keep it nice inside. But that's not a mechanised process. That's not like... Because the house I live in is a, a Canadian eco-house and we have a heat exchanger, air exchange mm. process, but it actually requires power to run and it kind of hums away in the background. Yeah, this is a wind-driven system. And yes, people do have mechanical systems... I personally like the wind yeah, driven and you can actually get get people have evolved these into something a bit smaller looking but did you know they've actually got these on the House of Commons offices as well I didn't I must go and have a look <laughs> These houses are these houses are built to last so they're very solid uh, two walls of brick and block uh, and designed for 125 year life which helps to um, you know, and hopefully a lot longer than that, which which yeah, helps to reduce the resource consumption because seventy percent of the impact of construction is the construction materials themselves. So it's really important to choose that choose wisely. Uh, so we've got local brick, uh, local green oak weatherboarding, uh, and a lot of reclaim. We use reclaimed steel in in the building as well. In the new projects we're doing. Uh, the buildings we're doing now we've got a development coming up in Surrey Um, we're going to use wood and panels Uh, so I think the whole industry's moved on uh, because we need we really drastically need to reduce the impact of construction globally as well yeah and you've and as well as using um, local materials you've used materials that have really weathering and aging well aren't they and we talked about you you know the weatherboarding but just looking up at them now I mean they look as if they could have been built yesterday yeah, it's good that they've held up so well. We do need to make sure the windows get painted because they're softwood. Right. Uh, and so they need regular repainting. But yeah, it's, uh, it's looks really good. So you can see here at Bedside, one of the things we've done is we've moved the, the cars to the outside and around the middle it's all paved and pedestrianised. Uh, and that means we've reduced the car parking and the number of cars here, so people drive a car 50% less than the people over the road. Uh, but also I think it helps the sense of community and the quality of life because the kids can go out to play. You know, in these days, can the kids go out to play, honestly? Not in but the they street, can here. In the they, can, they can here, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we've got this lovely field um, and community centre as well. And across and across the field, we can see a new build. And what's that, Sue, that build that's going up over yeah, there? Yeah, the council uh, here at Sutton Council have built a zero-carbon school, a passive house, uh, and hopefully you can take on the ideas of One Planet Living as well. Oh, great. Well, you're, you've caught, you're surrounded by converts. Indeed. We've got some more residents, and then in the corner over the other side of this field, what, what's that I'm looking at? The energy centre. Yes, so inside there, well, you can see there's lots of photovoltaic panels on the top generating electricity, and then we've got a big barn door 
you can see mm. behind that's an awful lot of wood chip right uh, where okay. we're generating the heat for the hot water which runs around the site uh, from from wood so that's part of our renewable energy strategy in the more in the newer projects now we're looking at going zero carbon from the point of view of um going all electric right uh, and generating as much renewable electricity and using heat pumps so i think the technologies have all moved on and these days everyone's worried about any air pollution from yeah. a, from a wood chip plant uh, especially yeah. in london so yeah yeah certainly doesn't seem like there's any air pollution out here I no it's beautifully clean and fresh <laughs> We've managed to snare a resident in our child. Steve, you, how long have you lived at Bedside? Uh, since 2002, since Bedside was first uh, available. So we were one of the first people to move in. And what prompted you to, to, to buy a house here? Um, we lived locally to start with. Uh, it was the environmental features that uh, really inspired us to want to be here. My wife uh, remembers seeing a building in Germany which had the living uh, machine sort of down the side of it with all the reed beds and everything. And yeah. when we found something with that type of technology being built here in uh, in London we we just really wanted to uh, to be part of it so uh, so and you we obviously moved, like yeah. it because you've not moved so. we've not moved well like many people here we've uh, we've been here for a long long time so uh, yes it's uh, it's it's very we we do really enjoy it yes and does it present any, any particular challenges of living in an environmentally friendly space like this i think the beauty of this development is the fact that you live as normal life you don't have to do anything different everything's here everything's made easier for you so that's what we enjoy about it it's great isn't it lucky you thank you very much yes thank you to my guests and thank you for listening we would love to hear from you about what you think about planet pod you can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes if you've enjoyed today's show please give us a five-star review it helps us make better programs be sustainable and stay green planet pod is an akil sounds production hosted by me amanda carpenter edited and produced by jim haywood with additional research by beth palmer 